If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We need to take action now to raise the overall level of immunization. It's important we strive to achieve what's sometimes called herd immunity. It's our expectation as part of this campaign that every child who's not immunized in BC or under immunized will have the opportunity to be immunized. This is Vancouver Province columnist Mike Smith. And I'm Vancouver Sun columnist Rob Shaw. It's time to go in the house and go inside BC politics. All right, welcome to this week's podcast. Rob Shaw here, joined this week because Mike Smith is off on vacation. I personally am not familiar with that term as a professional dedicated journalist. I am here all the time, except for when I was sick last week. But other than that, uh, we're joined with Vaughn Palmer, who's subbing in for Mike Smith. Vaughn, great to have you on the podcast. As usual, thanks for being here. Uh, I appreciate being here, but I just point out that I'm here because everybody else you asked said no. <laughs> that's, well, that still works. That's, yeah, still, that's, fine. that's still good. Yeah. Uh, we got a lot to cover this week. You know, it's funny, Vaughn, because uh, it's a week off at the legislature, and yet there's still a whole bunch of stuff that happens in this building. There's always that uh, perception that just because the politicians disappear, the politics stops flowing from the pipe at the legislature. It does not. Uh, in fact, there was a press conference at the press theater here just this week on measles, and the continued struggle from the government to get a handle on the measles outbreak. There's now 19 cases in the province. Health Minister Adrian Dix, Education Minister uh, Rob Fleming were here. Vaughn, they had a plan. What did you make of the government's plan on this? Well, yes, they're going to be making a big push in two steps to deal with what they regarded as an alarmingly low rate of immunization in the BC population immunized against measles. So they're going to be making a big push through the schools this spring and the health system overall to try to get the immunization rate back up to a more acceptable level. And then they're going to require, starting in September, that children in the school system be registered as to whether or not they are immunized. So there will be safeguards in place and detailed regulations. But the whole thing is around the idea of raising public awareness and getting the immunization rate up. They gave us some fairly sobering numbers on the problem this week. So a healthy rate of immunization in a a jurisdiction, in a place, in a population, is considered to be 95%. If 95% of the people are immunized, there really is next to no risk. That's the herd herd rate they call it. The herd rate. They think of us as a herd. So we're not anywhere near that. Not so long ago we were. We were low 90s, just maybe in the last 10 years, but the rate's been dropping. The way they measure it, they call it the benchmark, is how many children at age 7 in the school system 
are immunized. That's when you've had both your immunizations. It used to be, as I say, just above 90%. It's now down at 82%, and it's been dropping fairly quickly. The previous index was 88 So that's headed in absolutely the wrong direction, and that's why the government says it's going to make a big push to get more uh, people in the school system, more people in the general public immunized. They're stopping short of grabbing all the kids, pinning them down, and forcibly yes. immunizing them, which is uh, a legal issue other provinces have had to deal with. You can't that, – that's not acceptable under the law to force immunization unless you find a way to craft it around exemptions, religious exemptions, medical exemptions. You know, Some other provinces have tried to go this way. That question came up, Vaughn, about forcibly immunizing people, and the health minister isn't going there. Well, he said it's not in the cards now, and he also explained, he said, look, the the goal initially is to get the public aware that there's a problem, to get them engaged in the opportunities, to make it easier to get immunized, and to provide all the incentives and opportunities for that to happen. Um, they're not absolutely ruling out uh, being a little more proactive down the road, but Health Minister Adrian Dix said he doesn't want to sort of create a whole lot of polarization around it at this point because the goal is initially to get the immunization rate back to where it was just a few years ago. I think that makes sense. Dix, the health medical health authorities are concerned that there's a percentage of the population that is dug in against immunization, believes a lot of what frankly is BS about the risks of immunization, don't see the impact of children not being immunized on the small number of children who can't be for health reasons, and don't see that the risks of getting measles, I mean, at the extreme end, the risk is brain damage and death. That's mm-hmm. what the risk is. So this is a pretty serious exercise. Measles is very, very contagious. You can get it and carry it in a population, and before you break out, spread it to others. So it's, it's a, you know, I think the government's first steps are commendable, perhaps overdue, and they're going to give us periodic updates on how the rate is going. In other words, what the vaccination rate is. As it rises, they'll report progress. They declined to say today what their target is for when school resumes in the fall, but they said they think they'll see some improvement and they think we'll be impressed with the initial numbers. It's not totally clear either, based on what I was hearing today, about how the school registration system will really work for September. The health minister said he's going to have more details about that in May, but what what does that mean? You need to show your school... Um, that the child has been immunized, but what happens if they haven't or choose not to is still kind of unclear. And the, and I guess maybe the health minister is buying for time there to hope that the these these mass immunization uh, efforts, the mobile clinics, the school clinics, is going to bring it up before he has to get to that that route That's in September. True. We get the regulations for mandatory registration, not mandatory immunization. Mm-hmm. We get those regulations in May. Uh, the uh, public outreach uh, campaign to get everybody immunized uh, goes to June, and the government's putting a lot more money into that, $3 million to buy a whole lot more vaccines so they'll be available in the system, a lot of outreach and education. Um, I, I think from what they said to, today, Rob, we'll get the regulations. We'll see how the system for registration works. 
uh, to September the 1st. Probably people whose children aren't registered on September the 1st will get reminders and opportunities again. Yeah, down the road, if after all this we still haven't got up to that healthy level they're hoping to, then maybe we'll see stronger measures. But I think at this point they don't want to provoke a backlash by being too interventionist and too threatening until they've made an attempt to get it up at a voluntary rate. Yeah, so go get your kids immunized if you haven't done that. The government's not going to do it for you. They're not going to spray it from the sky with the chemtrails and all those other conspiracy theories. Just, I mean, if, if you believe that, turn off the podcast because nothing we say is going to convince and it's, you. it's free, folks. How often does the government give you something for free? Yeah, <laughs> even if it hurts a little bit. <laughs> uh, other big news here this week, Vaughn, we had the poverty... Uh, reduction plan from the government, which we've been waiting for for a while now. In fact, if you're a New Democrat supporter, this is year 10 of the New Democrats talking about some type of poverty reduction plan. Uh, it's almost, what, 18 months? 20 months. 20 months day. since the government, uh, the NDP formed government and was planning on doing this. Um, what did you make of this poverty reduction plan as it existed this week? Well, the minister in charge, Shane Simpson, was very apologetic about the fact that it took 20 months to get it to this point. He said that you know, when they got in in July of 2017, their first priority was to go out and consult the people who would actually benefit, who'd never been asked before what kind of a plan they wanted to see, what things they wanted to be addressed, and some of the experts. So they went through all that process, and that's why it took 20 months to get here with a 43-page poverty reduction plan. But the other thing he said, in their defense, and this is true, is they haven't been idle. They raised uh, social assistance rates. They raised the minimum wage. Uh, they brought in a cap on rent increases. They've done a bunch of other things. So some of the stuff in the plan is familiar because it's already been done. Other things in the plan are familiar because they've already been announced. And there's still some fairly ambitious stuff to come. The targets are very ambitious. Uh, the goal is to get 140,000 British Columbians to lift them above the poverty line within five years and to lift about 50,000 children above the poverty line in five years. Uh, we're going to get a report on that every year starting next year. You can take from that, Rob has read, that the New Democrats uh, are hoping to win another term of government to finish this plan because it won't, the target, the uh, full targets won't be realized until 2024. Yeah, you'll probably get the, what, the first year or two is going to be yes. excellent for the poverty reduction plan, not only because of what the NDP has done, but because of the economy as well. And we do hear this from from some of the groups in the province that we have had a fairly strong economy and there has already been some lift in the last couple of years, even under the Liberals, to reduce um, some parts of, of poverty, but not what we would call deep uh, systemic poverty. And even the Democrat allies who were out in favor of this poverty reduction plan says it doesn't do enough to address deep poverty, which is someone who is on income assistance uh, and has been on income assistance for a while and doesn't have a job and is so far below the poverty line that they just can't get out because the income assistance rate is so low. Uh, that was a criticism of the plan that the New Democrats haven't really hiked welfare and disability rates as much as some people would have liked to have seen. That's true. And of course, the other real challenge, and it's fundamental, and it isn't just in British Columbia where this is, uh, housing is such a huge part. Housing affordability is such a huge part of, of where you are on the poverty line that 
what is the government going to do about that? It's true they're investing in social housing. Uh, they've done some things for renters. But in the long run, they're also going to have to make a pretty big dent in the housing stock in the province and figure out ways to get the stuff housing approved, especially rental housing approved, so that it's affordable for people. So there's a lot of work to be done there. But yes, they've gotten a start on it. Uh, <laughs> Some of the things in the poverty reduction plan, too, one had to, to smile a little bit. Uh, I'm not sure most people living below the poverty line would consider that eliminating the tolls on the Portman Bridge was a gesture toward uh, improving or, or moving people above the poverty line in British Columbia. Yes, I, I mean, the commuters who were paying those tolls are delighted, but I'm not sure it has much to do with the poverty rate. Yeah, there were parts of that plan where it was like one of those old TV sitcoms where they just do the best of compilation. And it, a lot of that plan was a walk down memory lane of the things that the NDP has already done in 20 months. Uh, the child care benefit programs that they brought in, the subsidies, yeah. the promised tax credit for 2020, the housing plan, the rental reforms and, uh, you know, uh, capping the, the rent increases yeah. to the rate of inflation. So if you were going into the poverty reduction plan hoping for new items, I think you would be disappointed with what you read. And that, and that kind of raised a question that I have politically uh, for Shane Simpson, the social development minister in charge of this. Was it always the NDP's goal, do you think, Vaughn, to roll all of these things out and then just recap them in a poverty reduction plan? Or was the minister the victim of coming up with ideas that the government took for budgets and announcements and things over the last 20 months, leaving him essentially with a document that just recapped everything that's already happened? Because the government wanted the political benefit of you know, announcing childcare early, the pressure that it has to do uh, housing announcements. I'm just kind of trying to figure out if this was always the plan, do you think, for the poverty reduction plan to be kind of an encapsulation of stuff that New Democrats have already done? Yeah, I do. I think it's a result uh, partly of the fact that finance minister, the government, the premier want to get credit for the fairly splashy announcements on a range of things. There are programs like child care that overlap with affecting the poverty rate. And the other thing is, of course, some of this stuff, as I say, was was included in the budget update in 2017, the budget in 2018, the budget in 2019. So all of that together. And look, if the minister was going to go out and put together a plan after consulting stakeholders and people that are going to benefit from it, that was going to take a while. And here we are 20 months into the term. The next uh, thing I think you'd be looking to is when do we get this first update, this first progress report on the What's happened with the poverty rate? How many people have been lifted above the line? That comes in 2020 in the fall. And look, the other thing that this government will discover, as other governments have, is that there are things beyond the control of government. If there is a downturn in the economy, um, Canada does seem to be tottering on the brink of one, then things can happen to the number of people in poverty and jobs and a whole bunch of other things that really, in the short run anyway, the government can't control. There's another interesting 2020 date, which will be the result of the research into the basic uh, income pilot project that yes. government has commissioned this panel to investigate. That is important to reducing poverty, according to the minister, but it's not a it's not an inconsiderable um, item, and it could be ex both expensive and controversial for the government. Uh, Ontario has tried basic income uh, pilots, and obviously the change in government there has 
um, uh, turned that back. But uh, what do you make of the future of that, Vaughn? Is that something well, we should keep we, an eye on? You're right. Yeah, the NDP's actually got two of these things going. They've got a commission out there that's going to decide what is actually a fair wage, a living wage in British Columbia. This argument that the poverty the social assistance doesn't begin to provide a living wage. And then you've got this other uh, group out there trying to decide what is actually would be, how would a basic income program work so that the government guarantees you a certain level of income and essentially writes you a check to cover that if all the other things you're getting don't reach it. Uh, those will be controversial. They do fit with NDP approach to uh, social programs, uh, both those reports coming next year. And the minister, I think, is quite right when he said this week that this will be a matter of major political debate in the province, perhaps leading to the 2021 provincial election. And it's possible that the basic income project could be a wedge issue for the Liberals. They may come up with some arguments about whether or not that makes sense. But it's pretty tough for them to argue against the things that are in the poverty reduction plan. Yeah, they voted for it. They actually. voted for yeah. the, the shell bill that sets the timelines on it. Yeah. But also just, you know, the history of what we saw with the Liberals, Von, uh, you know, being so mean-spirited on social programs in the dying days of the Christy Clark government, the bus passes, the lack of a welfare rate increase for 10 years. It's tough for the Liberals in a straight face to criticize any of the stuff we've been talking about in this plan the New Democrats have brought in. Yes, especially since they had the money on hand to do a lot of this stuff. They left a $2.5 billion surplus when they left office. Uh, the, the, the Liberals could have done uh, a lot of the things that the New Democrats have talked about and still without raising taxes and still without going into deficit. So uh, there isn't just, you're right, an issue of mean-spiritedness about it, but there's a a kind of a political perversity about it that you know, why didn't they do some of this stuff which was needed, uh, which the public would have, I think, accepted and which they could have afforded to do. Yeah. Well, the, I don't know if the Liberals have figured that out yet, but... No, I'm not sure they have <laughs> <either>. <laughs> no, That's their problem in the... In the large scheme of things, the next time they face the voters. Uh, outside of the provincial boundaries here, there's been a lot going on politically. We'll stop first in Alberta, where there was an election call on Tuesday by Premier Rachel Notley. That sends voters there to the polls on April 16th. The, the polling, if you believe public opinion polling, and you know, take that with the grain of salt that it deserves, but the polling certainly indicates a big lead for the United Conservative Party's uh, Jason Kenney. Uh, as of now, Vaughn. But what do you make of the landscape in Alberta? Well, I think, you know, we've seen enough elections to know that uh, you wrote a whole book about this, uh, Rob, on the 2017 BC election. And I certainly covered the 2013 one where uh, it looked like the NDP was going to win. Uh, the campaign is what really matters for a lot of voters. They don't even focus in on the issue of whether or not they want to change a government or re-elect the government until the election gets underway and the dynamic of the campaign affects it too. The one thing that is clear from the opening day of that campaign, uh, Premier Rachel Notley, I watched her on her Facebook page and she started off by saying that her opponent, Jason Kenney, is a cheat. <laughs> and a liar, that he has serious problems with strong women, and that while she doesn't think he's a, rac a racist, she thinks he's allowed racism to flourish in his political party. So that's about as rough as it gets. Kenny denies all, of course, uh, had his first event of the campaign, 
in Leduc, Alberta, which is the cradle of the province's oil and gas industry, standing in front of a drilling rig, and he announced that Rachel Notley has wrecked the provincial economy, has let down Albertans on pipelines, and that it is time to send this accidental government, as he calls it, uh, into retirement. So uh, this is going to be a take-no-prisoners election campaign in Alberta, and I agree with you on what the polls say, but I would say that uh, I wouldn't predict the outcome yet. I think Notley herself is admired by many Albertans, uh, is seen as a strong leader, and Kenny has some problems because of his involvement in this scandal there where he's accused of having colluded with another candidate uh, in the party leadership race uh, colluded to freeze out the second-place finish, finisher, Brian Jean, of the Wild Rose Party. So there's uh, enough stuff there to me that I think the outcome of this election is still in play. And Kenny's also suffered his first resignation of a candidate yeah. for um, you know, private messages that show certain intolerance uh, to immigration. Uh, they've been described as kind of white supremacist views. That candidate's had to resign. So that is a liability for Kenny's party, you know, the social... Um, crazies <laughs> that he's that he's brought into his mix that may undermine his credibility depending on what people dig up about them. You're right. In political parties, uh, candidates are all vulnerable because of the slack and careless use of social media over the years. Uh, you know, things you said on Twitter, you lost your temper on Facebook and said stuff. You linked to things that were stupid in retrospect. All of that's out there and, and parties have to worry about that. The other interesting thing about the Alberta election to me is that so it's the country's other NDP government, and when NDP's governments run for re-election, New Democrats from all over the country tend to flock their organizers and uh, party supporters and interest groups and that uh, because of the tense. Uh, unhappy relationship between the BC NDP and the Alberta NDP over the pipeline issue, uh, you wonder, uh, will new Democrats from BC be discouraged from going to help Notley in the same way that she wasn't particularly encouraging of Alberta new Democrats to come out here and get help John Horgan get elected, even though they worked together in BC government in the 1990s, and Horgan, at least, calls her an old friend, although I think she denies the friendship now. <laughs> That's right. I don't <laughs> think they're friends anymore. I think it'll be a unwritten rule that if you currently work for or hope to work for the BC New Democrat government uh, and you plan on going to help your Alberta New Democrat friends, don't plan on coming back because <laughs> there's just too many differences on the pipeline and too many I think strong arm tactics that were used by the Notley government on wine and uh, yeah. threatening to cut off the, the oil supply to BC for that to be a relationship in which, um, you know, that, that, that there'd be comfortable feelings back and forth. I guess the other question will be if the Notley government loses in Alberta and we are left with one NDP government in the country, this will become a kind of refugee camp for New Democrat <laughs> staffers who will be out here looking for jobs. Every New Democrat federally, depending on what happens in the federal election this fall and in Alberta, will be here trying to look for the one governing opportunity that they have. That could be equally as awkward as the Alberta New Democrats come here looking for work. So it's kind of... But what, let's say that 
Kenny wins the Alberta yes. election. What's the immediate impact for British Columbia? Well, Kenny was asked about that this week. He was asked about it uh, in BC government's in court with his court case is complicated, but they're, st- they're fighting the pipeline in court and trying to regulate the movement of oil through the province. And Kenny was asked about that. And he said, well, you know, if I win the election, uh, uh, of course, the first thing I would do as Premier of Alberta is try to meet with Premier Horkin and see if we could come to an understanding and work things out. But he said, there's no question that he will do what it takes to get the oil to Tidewater. And he is prepared, uh, I guess you would say, to borrow a Horgan phrase, to use every tool in the toolbox to make Mm -hmm. that happen. Alberta, of course, the Notley government there passed a law, which has never been proclaimed in force, which allows the provincial government to, through permitting, to restrict the amount of oil that comes to British Columbia in the pipeline for use by British Columbians. Now, that law has not been put into force, although it's on the books in Alberta. And Kenny said he was prepared to use that law and other means as well. Wasn't saying that's necessarily the first thing he would do, but he said he is prepared to use that law if British Columbia is obstructing the movement of of oil through BC to world markets. Then Alberta would look at its options for restricting the movement of oil to BC. BC government, of course, has already admitted that if that were to happen, it could have a huge impact on the provincial economy. It would lead British Columbia probably to having buy oil at premium prices from refineries in Washington state. Yeah, so there's a lot on the line there, although it's not entirely clear how it would change if Notley wins re-election. I mean, that's a, it's just a different version of hardball coming from Alberta yes. to BC. So. It, uh, we'll be keeping an eye on that. The other uh, topic that uh, landed this week was the federal budget. Uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in up to his neck in scandals all over the place, mainly on the SNC-Lavalin scandal, which continues to just rock his government. So they table a budget with a ton of money in it uh, that they plan on going to the polls on. Vaughn, did anything jump out at you as particularly... Um, noteworthy for British Columbia or even just noteworthy for the survival of the Trudeau government? Well, this was supposed to be the year that Trudeau was going to balance the budget. Ha ha, very funny. Uh, Nowhere near that. Massive deficit, huge spending uh, pre-election. There's an interesting housing plan in there for millennials. I don't know if it'll help millennials in British Columbia buy housing, but I think it's a sign that the government is aware this is a huge problem in BC. Uh, There's been a suggestion the assistance isn't enough to really help in the cities, although may help in smaller BC communities. The other thing is the government uh, federal has announced, uh, recognized, acknowledged finally that it has a problem with money laundering in Canada, money laundering in British Columbia. They've established a task force that spans a half dozen federal ministries and agencies in the RCMP. Uh, They say they're going to spend something like $200 million over five years to try to get a better record of uncovering money laundering, stopping it, prosecuting it, and getting convictions on it. Uh, One has to wish them luck. Our record in this country is very poor so far. Uh, The other thing about that that occurred to me, Rob, is there have been a lot of calls in this province for the provincial government to have a public inquiry into money laundering, considering that, as I say, a half dozen federal agencies are involved in this exercise. I still don't see how the provincial government could investigate 
federal agencies, uh, even constitutionally and legally, and besides which, I think there'll be a temptation to say, well, let's let Ottawa, see if Ottawa has any more success with this uh, before you necessarily see the need for a public inquiry. Yeah, you did get the impression in the last little while that maybe B.C. was warming up to the idea of a public inquiry that had had been ruled out, even though John Horgan, you know, uh, has been tough in his language when asked about it and said, look, I don't want to make a lot of lawyers rich and take years to do this when we could be doing solutions now. And, I, you know, all this money from Ottawa on a task force, on boosting federal enforcement, that may be the kind of thing that BC is able to say, look, we wanted to do a public inquiry, but let's let Ottawa do it first. Uh, housing, obviously, was a big one. There, I, I noted that um, you know Adrian Dix has been very vocal about a national pharmacare plan, and this budget simply just stalled. It kind of threw some money at it to continue to structurally study it, but it certainly wasn't the dramatic, I think, bold push that some people were hoping for on that, certainly going into an election. There was a ton of money out on federal gas transfers, tax transfers. So they, the government doubled that, Vaughn, which I think yeah. allows them to... Uh, disperse shovels to every liberal uh, member in the country who can go out and start cutting ribbons and sod turning left, right, and center yeah. for announcements from here until the election. That's a pretty standard go-to safe move for governments to dump a bunch of money in on the capital side and head out before an election announcing projects. You're right, and it's a huge advantage to those municipalities and local governments that have got their act together and that have got a winning project ready to go because you are right, the 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 minister or the MP is going to want to be able to go to the site during the campaign, preferably even before the campaign, and say it's going to happen right here. The problem sometimes with BC municipalities and local governments is that unlike the uh, the more alert parts of the country, like Quebec, say, uh, and Ontario, they're not ready, really. Uh, you know, they got, well, yeah, we'd like to do this thing, but we haven't got local approval for it, and blah, 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 and, and, and Ottawa is not going to listen to that. They, they want to know that we can go there with a ribbon and a shovel and get the damn thing underway so we get the publicity before the election. Yeah, there's been internal studies in, in Ottawa talking about the delays between, you know, and uh, getting this money out and the projects and then announcing it. And so, yeah, absolutely, they don't want to come to the Capital Regional District with 13 squabbling mayors disputing which road can go where and which bike lane and what intersection and that... Yeah. This, this look, is, look at what happened with the transit line in Surrey. Trudeau came out here in September of last year and said, we're going to build a light rail line through Surrey. And Horgan was there with him, and they had the backdrop and the maps and the charts and the business plan ready to go. Surrey voters <laughs> elect a mayor who's opposed to it, and they've sent the project back to square one. Uh, my fellow Canadians, that is not how you get money out of Ottawa. That makes you wonder about the transit file in Vancouver. Could there be a massive push now for the the full Broadway subway line to UBC? Could that business case appear magically out of thin air? Could we see a revised total business case for SkyTrain through Surrey that could pick up some more federal dollars? It's complicated because, you know, Ottawa and BC have this funding arrangement on these transit projects that... I don't think Ottawa wants to set the precedent of just dumping more money onto it for the sake of one election that then they're suddenly on the hook in the future for more and more and more share of local transit. But it could be a vote getter for the Liberals in a province where I think 
the Liberal Party's fortunes in British Columbia are, are a lot dimmer than they were in the last election. Maybe yeah. they throw well, some hey, trades. Well, hey, we got another federal cabinet minister this week. Uh, hands up, everybody who can name uh, the new federal cabinet minister from BC. Okay, fun. Uh, Joyce Murray, <laughs> former provincial cabinet minister, member for Vancouver Quadra, and she's the new head of Treasury Board. So also uh, a recognition to, for a liberal veteran. Opposed to the government's pipeline project in the past as well. So she's already been getting some questions about that. Well, you own this pipeline uh, expansion now. What do you make of that? So yeah. it's an awkward <laughs> positions for people to have. The only other thing that I, I noticed in the budget, Vaughn, was a, a lot of money for reconciliation with First yes. Nations. There's, I think, almost $4.5 billion over five years. And they've forgiven the treaty loans. And yes. So First Nations that negotiate treaties, and a lot of them have been, uh, Ottawa advances the money to do that so they can hire experts and resources and lawyers and negotiators. And and they, they leave the meter running on that. And supposedly, when you get your treaty settlement, uh, you pay that back out of your settlement. But many First Nations say they've been at the table so long and progress has been so meager that the amount they owe Ottawa for the negotiations exceeds the amount they are likely to get. So the federal government's had a bit of a bumpy ride with First Nations of late. Uh, you can look up all those reasons in the file, but they've announced that uh, this has been expected for a while, but they've actually done it. Uh, the treaty loans are on the house. You don't have to repay it. If you can get a decent settlement, you get a decent settlement. You don't have to pay back all the time you spend at the table talking to Ottawa, even those days when Ottawa didn't much feel like giving you anything. Yeah, a lot of money from Ottawa, but I, I do wonder, you know, if the money is in, um, you know, exchange for a kind of a lack of leadership. I know British Columbia felt like Ottawa was going to take the lead on UNDRIP, defining the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples in some type of form. You know, a Canadian version of it is what uh, Justin Trudeau's government had promised. And BC's kind of had to go it alone on UNDRIP. They're struggling through yeah. putting it into mandate letters and into legislation. And I, I think they might have appreciated more federal leadership uh, as well as the cash, but uh, on that file than just throwing a bunch of money at First Nations uh, and, and calling it a step forward in reconciliation. So we didn't see that from Ottawa, and I get, you, know, you get ah. the feeling they're certainly stalled on that issue. Because they were here with some money for fish last week. Though. That's true. Yes, That's true. Yes. So yeah. they're, you yeah. know, they're, usually they'll write checks in election year, even, especially if you've got something specific that you want it for. It's just that we're not always on the ball knowing what we want in British Columbia because we're kind of divided on the issues. Yeah. The MLAs are back in the House uh, for the continuation of the spring session next week. Vaughn, there'll be lots on the agenda. We'll be closing in on the April 1st deadline for big changes to BC's auto insurance system. That'll be coming up pretty soon. I'm sure we'll all be keeping an eye on that, but uh, we will watch what's going on in BC politics. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or there's uh, feeds on our website uh, to, for your local podcast and your favorite podcast subscriber. Uh, what else do we have? Follow us on Twitter. We're both active on the tweeters uh, and read your columns in the Vancouver Sun every day, Vaughn, and uh, my stories as well. Thank and you. our friend Smith will be back next week for Smith fans, so that's good. Yeah, thanks for coming on, Vaughn.